Mythology, a new podcast celebrating the culture and history of the island of Ibiza. I'm Bill Beecham, an Ibiza-based journalist, and in each podcast I will interview Ibithans who are contributing in some way to the life and culture of this diverse island. In the previous episode of Ibithology, you were introduced to Elmir de Hori, the 20th century's greatest art forger, through an interview with his companion in Ibiza, Mark Forgey. This time, we delve deeper into Elmir's life and art as I speak to the renowned art historian Geoffrey Taylor, who has a particular interest in art forgery. He studied Elmir's life, debunking some of the claims made by Elmir about his background and paying close attention to his art. In Geoffrey's words, Elmir is more than just an art forger. In some ways, he is the greatest work of performance art of the 20th century as his entire life was an act of artifice. Everything we know about him is a construct of his own creativity and imagination. Elmir de Hori was born in Budapest in 1906 and studied art in Hungary, Germany and France. After the war, he moved to Paris, but found it tough to make a living as an artist. He discovered a talent for copying the style of early 20th century modern artists, such as Mogliadani and Picasso. Elmir peddled a story about being an aristocratic Hungarian, displaced by the war, who had fallen on hard times and forced to sell what remained of his family's arts collection to make ends meet. As Geoffrey points out, his real name was Elmir Hoffman and he was born, probably, to a lower middle-class Jewish family, which was not particularly wealthy. In 1961, Elmir, seeking a quieter life, moved to Ibiza where he became something of a local celebrity. Although he enjoyed life here and loved the island's bohemian social scene, he always lived in fear of extradition to France. In 1976, believing he was about to be sent to France, he took his own life. During the interview, we also discuss how he successfully eluded the authorities for so many years and the secrets to his success as a forger. Let's join Geoffrey now on the phone from the United States. Hello, Jeffrey. Jeff Taylor here. Hello, Jeff. It's Will Beecham calling you. Yeah, thanks for calling. Well, th- thanks so much for offering to, to talk to me. I came across the, the book about, about Elmer. It's a fascinating book. And, th- and then I saw your long biography that you wrote on, uh, on, on your website. H- have you come across many of, of his works yourself? Sometimes, but more often what we come upon, and this is kind of funny in an ironic sort of way, are fake Elmers. And that's a result of the fact that Original forgeries by Elmir, because of his fame, have themselves started to become valuable on the art market. You know, they can 
be sold for twenty, thirty thousand dollars, which is quite enough money for a forger to try to make fake Elmir forgeries. <laughs> That's fascinating. And we do come upon those. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you think of, of, of Elmir's um, works himself, of, of his, his own fakes, of the quality of them? Well, they're, they're really quite good, especially, uh, you know, he, he had a certain group of artists who he focused on, mostly those from a period he felt he knew well, which was the so-called École de Paris, which is just a term we have for kind of the early 20th century of modernist artists who worked in Paris. And he was particularly known to do Picasso, Matisse, and especially Modigliani. And if there's a lasting consequence of Elmer's forgeries, it's the difficulty with which the people who work on Modigliani have been able to, or not been able to, produce a convincing, what they call catalog raisonné, a complete compendium of the works by Modigliani, because his oeuvre has been so thoroughly corrupted with works by Elmir that now the experts are facing a very difficult task trying to untangle the two. So he he really is quite successful. Um, I would say about Almir, he's more than just an art forger. I would say in some ways he's the greatest work of performance art of the 20th century because his entire life was a great act of artifice of which part of it was creating art forgeries. But everything we know about him is a construct of his own creativity and imagination. And I, I start with, for example, that, that fun book that Clifford Irving wrote about Elmir, which itself is a product of Ibiza because the two met there uh, Clifford Irving was very much the kind of person you could have found on Ibiza in the late 60s. And the truth is, the book is very well written. It's, I think you can agree, it was very charming. Uh, it became a bestseller because it was so engaging to read. That said, much of the book is not true. <laughs> and it, 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 it wasn't that well researched then. He was really basing it on, an, on interviews with Elmer, is that right? Basically, he took exactly what Elmer said. And if you take, uh, I believe it's the beginning of the second chapter, which is when he tells the background of Elmer, on the first two pages of Elmer's background, like where he grew up, uh, where he studied, what his family background is, there are nine significant untruths in that, starting with, his family did not live in the Buddha side of Budapest, which is the fancier, richer side. His family lived in Pest, which is the very middle-class, working-class part of Budapest. His father was not an ambassador um, or an aristocrat. Um, above all else, we think Elmir was obsessed with having an aristocratic title. And hence... 
the d in his name, which, of course, Europeans know that the d means that we are of aristocratic background. And if you know Hungarian aristocratic families, aristocratic families in Hungary always have a Y at the end of his name, and Hori with a Y. Uh, and that's not true. His, his real name was Elamir Hoffman. He was born to probably a lower middle class Jewish family, 100% Jewish, so not half Jewish as he claimed, uh, not particularly wealthy, though we did figure out where he got his inclinations towards wealth, which is his grandfather, who lived in Transylvania, uh, was, was a prosperous brick factory owner. And we found the brick factory where his grandfather had had that business and he was a prosperous well-liked member of the local industrial elite and Elmir probably got tastes of what it was like to be uh, part of the aristocracy and was really quite obsessed with that in fact we think that when he was facing extradition to France in 1976, which was the year he committed suicide, we think that what he really feared was that the French and Spanish police had finally succeeded in identifying who is this man. If they knew who they wanted to extradite, they just didn't know what his name was. And ultimately, they figured out it was a guy named Eleanor Hoffman. And I think Elmir was, what he feared more than anything, was being exposed as not an aristocrat. And that he had no de in his name. Do, do you have any idea why he pursued that, that life of, of artifice? Because he was entirely incapable of doing work. And he had an obsession with the high life led by the aristocracy as well as the cultural elite of movie stars and wealthy people. And he was obsessed with that lifestyle. Uh, his, uh, his heir and close companion for the last years of his life, Mark Forgey, has told us that, you know, what Elmir really wanted to do was to have parties and to entertain and socialize with glamorous people. And ultimately, at the end of his life, you know, after the Irving book came out and he was exposed as this, you know, celebrity forger, he really did mix with a very elite crowd. I mean, it's, it's, it's true that one of his closest friends was Ursula Andress, the first Bond girl, and, you know, who lived close to him on Ibiza. And he really did mix with that kind of a crowd, and that's what he really wanted to do. He didn't want to, he, he never worked in any sense of the term in any meaningful way. Even the art forgeries that he produced, uh, he, you know, he he had to be pushed into making them, or you know, financial desperation had to lead him to make them. Uh, and then whenever he got money, he promptly spent it. Uh, because he liked to spend money. We know that even before the Second World War, he had a criminal record going back to the late 20s and 30s uh, for things like 
stealing jewelry, uh, check fraud, uh, forgery of documents, and uh, impersonating a person of title, which in some countries in Europe at that time, that was a crime to impersonate someone with an aristocratic title, which he did frequently. And so we know that he was kind of always trying to live beyond his means. And art forgery was the best way to get the money to be able to afford that. Though he would usually quickly go through that money and then need to do it some more. Um, and how do, how do you think that he managed to deceive the art world so effectively for so long? Because he really did for decades, didn't he? He really did, yeah. Well, okay, so his strategy, not that I think he thought this out, but his strategy was effective at, for a long time because he really started this right after the war. And he did a tactic, you know, which we could kind of describe as flying under the radar. He didn't do paintings for much of his early career. He did drawings. Now, drawings were A, required far less material. It required some old paper, which he knew how to find in old books and cut out of old books, where you could find that last page in a book that was blank, and he would cut that page out and use that paper. Uh, and then you just need what you would call oak gall ink, which is an ink that's made from crushed uh, wasps' nests which is a very traditional way of making ink. And so then there's really no trace materials, nothing for an art forensics expert to detect because the materials are essentially old or consistent. And they're drawings. They're not paintings. They don't, they don't take a long time to dry. And if he's doing famous artists like Modigliani, who was dead, or Picasso or Matisse, who were quite famous at that time, and probably nobody would have paid attention to the drawings that were being sold. Uh, and and he was good at it. He really did convince... They were very convincing drawings. And, uh, and then he moved around a lot. And he always had a very good provenance, a backstory from where these come from, which, again, fell into his habit of pretending to be aristocracy. He would often portray himself as the scion of a famous there there were actually and, and this is something where we could have get his obsession with aristocracy in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in its late period there were actually so-called Jewish barons people of Jewish background who either through wealth or what they had done for the empire had been given aristocratic titles so they were truly barons and some of them were the best art collectors in Hungary uh, they had the best art collections. And so Almir would often betray himself as people from this background. Uh, and, of course, everybody knew that the Nazis or the Soviets had stolen most of the art, especially from the great Jewish collections. And all of this stuff was just churning around the uh, post-war art market. And back then, there was not a lot of qualms about, well, gosh, is this really yours? Or should I have this? Or so on, and Elmir was portraying his drawings that he was selling as coming from one of these great uh, Jewish baronial collections. 
So it was a good provenance, and his accent sounded right. His behavior, his manners were always of a very aristocratic style. So they were very convincing in that way. And he always portrayed himself as you know, somebody who had a great art collection, but it was all stolen, and now all that he has is these handful of drawings by Picasso and Matisse. And it was a very believable backstory. And so he was able to sell a lot of them that way. And that's how he really got going was, was as I said, you know, through this method of just selling drawings. And then later, when he had an apartment in New York for a while, he first began to try his hand at, at painting, which is such a much more complex process because it's very difficult to dry oil paints to a level that is convincing and to find the proper supports of the old canvases, the old stretchers, and uh, to use the correct materials. So that was something Elmer only began later. And so once he began to do paintings, it was also around this time that he eventually got mixed up with his dealers, uh, Lessard and Legros, who knew what he was doing and basically, you know, blackmailed him into working for them. And that's when the move to Ibiza happened. Uh, they set him up there in that villa that he lived at and put a secret room in the villa where he could secretly do uh, the paintings and, and then have the proper means and uh, space to really dry them properly. And he was able to, while he lived on Ibiza, to keep this, uh, this kind of uh, persona that he liked to project, which is that he was a former, I mean, a Hungarian aristocrat who was now living in exile because the communists were now ruling in Hungary, and so that's why he was no longer in Hungary, but that he was, you know, of of this aristocratic background. And, and, and that's all people thought he was until, of course, Irving's book came out. His connection with Ibiza, do you know, did he come and go from Ibiza, or was he based there fairly permanently for, for a while? He did come and go. We know that he had to travel. He... he, he in, in, during that period, he he supposedly traveled to Australia. Um, he frequently had to go back to France because, you know, if he was going to make these paintings successfully, he had to get the proper materials, which included finding old paintings, canvases that he could reuse because those kind of things really had to be old and that was something even back then in the 60s, you know, people could could tell if this was not an old canvas and an old stretcher. Those were things that would give it away right away as a forgery. So Elmer had to travel to France to periodically get materials. Otherwise, he was mostly based in the Pita. And then when when the Irving book came out and when Le Gros and the side were, were caught in, in Paris and exposed and... And then all of a sudden, he was this forger that nobody had known. Uh, he became quite a celebrity. In fact, uh, he had an exhibition in Madrid uh, during that period. Uh, he and Mark traveled quite a bit uh, to London and other places. And Elmir was really enjoying the celebrity that he had 
acquired uh, as a result of the Irving book. Uh, of course, the only thing was he feared that ultimately the French police were going to get the Spanish police to extradite him. And that's what he fought for basically kind of the last six years of his life, basically from around 1969 or so till 1976 was he was enjoying the celebrity, but, but he feared that sooner or later, you know, he was going to get extradited to France. And, uh, and he, uh, you know, he did everything to try to essentially prevent that by simply making it impossible to even identify him. So in other words, you know, they couldn't really extradite him was his theory if they couldn't identify him. If they couldn't figure out who is this man who is, you know, supposedly guilty of creating these forgeries, but, but in fact, uh, you know, we don't know his name, his real name, because his fake name is entirely made up and there is no such person. You know, he was also enjoying that time because there were two documentary films made about him during that period. The first was by Francois Reichenbach, who was a French art dealer who had actually been sold a painting by Elmire. And then he decided to make a movie, documentary film about him for the BBC. And it was shown once on the BBC. And it's a beautiful documentary, uh, very well made. It's mostly about, it's really, I think from a perspective of Ibiza, it's a beautiful portrait of life on Ibiza at that time. It's... uh, it's basically all set in a single day where Elmir talks to Reichenbach and talks about how he does these art forgeries and explains how he makes them. And then the rest of it is him going around Ibiza and going to cafes and seeing people and inviting them to his house for a party. And then the movie concludes with the party that Elmir has at his uh, at his villa, and you really get a sense like this is what Almir likes doing. He likes having parties with glamorous people, and that's what he really enjoyed. And so that film was made. Most people have not seen it because I think about the only place you can see it is on that website for that exhibition, Intent to Deceive. But it's a great movie. And then Orson Welles found out about the story, and of course, Orson Welles is a guy who made his career with art for, I mean, with forgery. I mean, Orson Welles, you know, became famous because he staged a fake Martian invasion. And, uh, and, and then, you know, Citizen Kane is a, a fake documentary. Uh, if you, you know, if you actually kind of watch it, you realize it's a, it's a fake documentary about a made up, you know, uh, tycoon, and and even his most famous acting role, The Third Man, is about a guy who stages, fakes his own death. So, you know, Orson Welles was obsessed with confusion and illusion and deception. And so Orson Welles, you know, just really wanted to make that movie, S for Faye. And it still is basically the last film that Orson Welles ever completed. And he actually hired Reichenbach to be his director of photography because Reichenbach had all this footage from his own movie. And so uh, a lot of the footage you see in F for Fake was actually shot by Reichenbach for the, for the first film. And then Orson Welles borrowed it for his film, but did some amazing work with 
editing and other things. And, you know, so Elmir was just really enjoying this celebrity that, that, that came to him. And, uh, but at the same time, always fearing, you know, ultimately the, uh, the extradition that was going to be coming. It sounds like he might have enjoyed his um, final few years in Ibiza and finally living the life that he'd, that he'd sought. He did, he did. And, and he really adored Mark, his companion. Um, I think he felt really happy with Mark. And, uh, and, and like I said, he, he, he really was quite a celebrity by that point. And he really did mix with an elite crowd. Mark tells a story of them meeting Marlene Dietrich in London, and she just adored Elmer. And and as I said, um, you know, Ursula Andress, who was the first Bond girl, uh, was really kind of one of the, you know, real, um, you know, movie stars of the late 60s. Uh, she, she was really one of his closest friends. They really were quite close together. And uh, so, you know, that it, it was, uh, it was kind of a golden age of Ibiza. And, and I think he's really a product of, of the island. Uh, his celebrity, you know, had so much to do with Irving's book and, and Clifford Irving himself is such a product of, you know, the kind of people you would find on the island and uh, be able to, uh, uh, you know, mix in those crowds of artists and, writers and you know glamorous people and and uh and i think like i said if you watch that reichenbach movie you'll you'll really get a window into that late 60s culture that was prevalent on the island and uh i think it's called the, the true picture true picture yeah it's a beautiful movie like i said just really fun especially if you're interested in like the old Ibiza of the 1960s have you been to Ibiza yourself? It sounds like you've done a lot of research on, on Elmer. <laughs> you know, I haven't, unfortunately. Uh, I, I've worked with some filmmakers. <laughs> They've been working on a documentary film for, for some time. It hasn't come out yet, but uh, they did a bunch of interviews on Ibiza. But I, my background was I lived in Hungary for 20 years. And so I, I kind of understood Elmer from the Hungarian side. Uh, I worked in the art market in, in Hungary for 20 years, and I kind of knew characters who totally matched his personality and kind of that. I mean, art forgery is so prevalent in that part of Central Europe and and also kind of the ideas of survival that kind of associate with art forgery like I'm justified to do this because I have to commit this seat in order to survive and and Elmir really embodied that idea and the other thing is I work in the field of art forensics and we came upon an art forger of Jackson Pollock's we came upon an art forger of Jackson Pollock's who was of Hungarian background in the United States. He was what they would call a 56er, somebody who'd left Hungary in 1956. And we think he definitely had read Clifford Irving's book and basically got this idea like, oh, I can do what Elmir Dehori did and did exactly the same thing but different where he invented this whole story and background about himself that he was a Luftwaffe pilot in Berlin from an aristocratic background. Again, you see the pattern 
but then he went and rescued his Jewish girlfriend out of Auschwitz. And then he became a spy for the MI6 in Eastern Europe and spoke such fluent Russian that he ultimately was embedded in the Soviet Union and became a Soviet state prosecutor and then rescued his girlfriend out of a gulag. Again, you see a pattern there. Um, until eventually he went to the United States and he served as the Russian to English translator for multiple American presidents, including President Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay, so we're listening to all the stories about this guy. And we're just thinking, oh my God, this is just like Elmir Dehori. He makes up all of these totally unbelievable stories about his background and where he came from. And he was making all forgeries at the same time to basically finance his lifestyle. And uh, in his case, he was forging Jackson Pollocks. And we know of at least about 80 fake Jackson Pollocks that he's produced. And a lot of people who bought them for, you know, significant money. So not Jackson Pollock prices like a million dollars, but he got a lot of people to pay about $20,000 for them on kind of the theory that he that these were authentic Pollocks and they would be worth millions. And uh, so we saw so many patterns where this guy had clearly learned from Elmer Tahori and, and, and kind of was using so many of the same tactics of how he justified the forgeries and then also how he created this incredible, totally ridiculous backstory about himself, but people believed it. People really believed it. So, uh, so that's where my connection to Elmer came. You obviously feel, um, I don't know, a kind of empathy or, or a connection with, with um, his story, sounds like, with, with your connection with Hungary as well. Yeah, it does. I mean, he's such a character of that era. And, you know, I always explain to people, I'm like, if you were Jewish and gay in the 1930s in Hungary, yes, you would have learned deception as a survival technique. And you would have learned how to forge not just art, but documents and a background and everything about yourself because that's how you survived. So it does make sense. In fact, you know, deception and artifice is so central to Almir. If you go to his grave in Ibiza, it just says two things. It says Almir his totally made-up name. I mean, literally no one else in the world has this name, Almir. It's an entirely invented name. And his gravestone says Almir and the date 1912 to 1976. And on that gravestone, there are two falsehoods. One, his name. And two, he wasn't born in 1912. He was born in 1906. So even, this is the incredible thing, even on his gravestone, he lies about his age. I wonder if I can track down his gravestone. It's somewhere there, yeah. I think, look it up. I'd love to uh, hear what it looks like today, because uh, I've seen pictures of it on the internet. Um, mm. And and that's where I, I, you know, I'm able to discern this. But um, somewhere, yeah, somewhere on the island. And do you, do you know um, how he first heard about Ibiza? Why did he end up, why did he choose Ibiza to go and live to do his painting? That's a good question. You know, I, I think if you look in the Irving book, I think, I don't remember what is the reasoning. I 
thought I remember his his dealers brought him down there for some reason, but I don't want to. Not 100 percent sure that's the reason. Hmm. Um, I'll, I'll, but I'll, I look at if I think it's in the book somewhere. Yeah, um, at right. least the theory. I mean, again, it, like I said, the book itself. I mean, Elmir lies constantly to his own biographer. So, you know, he's his own most unreliable source. <laughs> but in theory, I think the dealers had, I think Legros and Lassard had something to do with that, bringing him down there. Well, thanks very much for your time, Jeffrey. Well, it's a great story. And I think he is, I mean, given what, you know, what, what your podcast profile is, I think he's like the perfect story. I think he just embodies, you know, so much of the kind of the, culture of the island, especially in that late 60s era. This haunting song was recorded in San Jose in the 1950s in Ibiza. It's called Bon Amor Jo et Venk Aver, which roughly translates as Good Love, I'll Come See You. It's part of the Alan Lomax collection at the American Folklife Center in the Library of Congress. It's used courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity. Well, 